This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Andy Zhang. He's the CEO of Watchbox China. Andy, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It is um, an interesting development in your career that you are now running Watchbox. <laughs> when you and I first met, we were fellow collectors, but you were you were very entrepreneurially minded. And I think it's great that you are now very officially in industry. I guess the first question is, how does it feel to be on the industry side versus just the collector side? Being in the industry, I thought that it's going to be a uh, boring thing. So when you were a collector, you, you had all your um, <laughs> quite simply um, perceptions. You think that uh, people they don't, who are running the brand and you know, only collectors know what's going on in the watch world, which is completely wrong. right? So after I joined the industry, I made so many good friends. And now I get to know exactly how uh, how the platform is working, how a brand is working. It just uh, gives me uh, uh, more and more respect for the industry. It also brings me a lot more inner peace and the balance because now I can see things on both ends. It's the bright side or you see the dark side, the dark force, that's how we call it. So it, once I'm able to see things in the 360 degrees, it really helped me to look at things in a more long-term uh, vision. That's all I feel about. That's a very interesting statement about being able to see both sides of it. And that's true that in the industry, people who make watches very often don't understand the process of buying watches and people that buy watches have very little understanding of what it's like to make watches. What are some of the things that you would say to fellow collectors now that you've seen you know, through the dark forest as you said, what are some of the things that you've learned and discovered that maybe you'd like to impart and, and communicate to all the collectors out mm. there that will help them sort of understand things? You know, like what, what little pieces of secret wisdom you can share that you think all collectors need to know about the inner workings of the industry? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll, I'll be really happy to share, um, maybe not wisdom, but I might few cents on my uh, personal experience. You know, when I started as a collector, when I want to buy watches for collection, now, I always wanted the best pricing, for sure, you know, the mostly editions, stuff like that. Um, but since I joined industry, you start to feel like, okay, so if someone is keep buying something at discount, which means the brand is not strong enough, so why, what's the point of still having the retail price? That's question number one. Question number two is that if everybody's buying a limited edition, there is no longer a limited edition anymore. It's not special anymore. So... You know, be on the other side, you look at it in the business world, you look like, wow, okay, something got to be, you know, uh, it, it's got to be balanced in between. So for myself, I now tend to just buy the things that the aesthetics, the design, the brand, story, the brand that I personally love, and I buy it because I'm going to wear it uh, down the line for minimum three to five years. And I also buy it because the piece resonates with me. And then I'm feel, I'm, I don't want to feel like the watch is dominating my life. Right? I don't want to. I don't want to feel like the watch is dominating on my wrist. I want to feel like okay, it's part of my daily life. It's part of my body. I right? uh, you know wear it and walk on the street. So it's really a balanced thing. 
uh, I'm looking at. I think that would really help. Right now, it's a very, um, I wouldn't call it a bearish, very bearish market, but it's a very interesting market that you have lots of speculations. People want to make quick money. They have no patience for investment, and then some people want to invest into watches. There are so many topics um, going on in this world. But I do see that uh, in long term, it's those collectors who actually bought watches for their own taste and well that who actually gain the most out of it. Now, that sounds like very sensible advice. It's something that we've talked about, of course, in the past. But you say it as though it's a little bit of a revelation to some collectors. What would you say is the mentality that is the opposite of what you're saying? You mentioned a little bit about investing in short term. Explain maybe where your mind used to be at or where certain people's minds are at that are sort of pre this enlightened phase that you are now in. I mean, we've all been through that stage when you see you have a watch and all of a sudden, luckily, maybe it gets like a 30, 40% premium on the market. Uh, you want to sell it, you want to, you know, for my case, back then, I wanted to upgrade to uh, better pieces. And some people, okay, I want to just cash out. and uh, um, But one of the things I do realize is all, all of the pieces that are consolidated or like kind of like sold, it's hard to buy it back because you basically let it go and then you won't be paying the market price to buy it back. So consolidation is good on point for people to upgrade their collection. But at the same time, do keep the timepieces to be with. And then uh, um, I'm seeing a lot of, like, for example, like Audemars-Piguet, um, these two years, a lot of Audemars-Piguet on the market. Um, there are many young people, they bought it for like months and then they start selling it. Then what's the point of buying a watch? You know, you should buy, you should be buying it and it's worth, right? It's not like you buy it for months and you try to sell it and make money. It's not going to get you the most money you want for your life anyway. That's interesting because, uh, again, you know, when we've always spoken as collectors, there's always been this discussion about wear what you like, you know, buy the things that mean something to you. But it sounds like, at least for the last several years you where you were a collector, there was sort of an investor mentality. Do you think that these people would have been watch lovers if it wasn't for the investor mentality? And what I'm asking is... Did the opportunity, real or imagined, to make money with watches bring people into the watch industry that maybe never would have bought watches before? You see what I'm trying to say? Like, I'm trying to figure out mm -hmm. how many people bought watches because they saw them as investment, and now that they're not, they're like, well, I'm not interested in watches anymore. Well, for China market, we are having quite a few uh, new luxury watch buyers to see watches as investment, which is... There's nothing wrong with it, right? So watches have become I mean, a very one of the best assets for people to collect and invest. And on the line, by the test of time, they became collectible. And then, then the money is involved. So, I mean, I'm still seeing a rising up trend that people see watches as investment assets, which, in fact, I'm seeing a big rising up trend about it. There are going to be more and more people, at least for China market, buying watches as assets. Uh, step one. But I'm also seeing lots of people after only the watches, they begin to love them, right? They become watch lovers. They want to know more than why uh, set up a diversified watch collection portfolio. That's the good thing to see. So it doesn't matter what you do in the first three months, six months. I think it does matter what you're doing uh, for, for, for four to five years, you know, how to deal with watches. I think that, that is something that I also keep telling myself, you know, don't look at the things for the next six months. You've got to look at like a minimum of three to five years on the line. 
That's that's obviously very sound advice, and it's um, something that everyone who's interested in watches should definitely know. Now, let's let's talk a little bit about Watchbox. Um, not everyone yeah. listening actually knows what Watchbox does. Watchbox was sort of co-founded by uh, uh, Danny Goberg here in the United States and has a European yeah. division and other divisions and now a, a China division. What is Watchbox and what exactly do you do there as the CEO of China? Sure. I mean, I was, uh, I was lucky enough to be blessed with a very unique positions since I started with uh, this industry. Now the first client and business, uh, business development director for Long Live Impact in China. Then I was the first head of watches for China market for Philips. And now even CEO of Watchbox, this position is a brand new and first time for the company too. I would say that Watchbox for each region, um, we have specialized, different localized uh, business. But to make it short, right, we, 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 we sell our watches. But at the same time, we trade watches with us. And also we provide, we want to provide a healthy sustainable uh, watch educations to collectors and also watch lovers. And that is what, I, what I'm going to do with China too. You know, in China for Watchbox, we're going to have primary business uh, starting from Tibetune because uh, um, I'm sure you know that uh, uh, we, we are quite friend. Uh, we're now the biggest shareholder. Uh, we're going to have this brand uh, and we're going to promote it to make million China for primary business as retail business. And at the same time, we have our signature pre-owned trading business um, buying and selling for uh, also providing portfolio management advice to collectors and thirdly we have uh, what uh, watch education you know, watch education the watch culture education uh, knowledge um you know we we we, we go we have uh, collaboration events with uh, um, financial institutions uh, even universities you know so uh, that's kind of like three dimensions for what was China to go down the line. Okay, that's interesting. I've always wondered, do the watches that Watchbox has in inventory move between markets? Like, do the ones in the U.S. get traded and sold in China, and the ones in China sold in Europe or the U.S. or whatnot? Or do the watches generally stay where they are, meaning the watches that you acquire is pre-owned in China – you know, are going to be sold to a consumer in China and probably are going to leave the market. How does it work exactly? That's a very good question, actually. Because um, I think pre-owned market, uh, it's, it, for sure, it's booming. Uh, we call it secondary market now because we also have some pre-owned brand new pieces. We have a global inventory. You know, we have uh, literally more than 300 million US dollars worth of uh, inventory globally. But it doesn't mean that we can move all the inventory into many in China. To move all the inventory into mainland China, you need to do proper custom uh, clearance. You need to have the watches uh, with the right record, right paperwork to be able to trade trade it uh, legally. You know, there are many watch dealers, uh, you know, from uh, uh, you know mainland China or from Hong Kong, from uh, Singapore, Japan, and all all the places. Um, people trying to sell watches to the clients mainland China, but none of them is providing a established service with within compliance. I think that's that is going to be the biggest thing in China, which you'll see on the line the next uh, uh, one year or uh, uh, 18 months, there'll be many watch dealers getting problems because they are not trading uh, within compliance. What does compliance mean exactly? You say compliance. So these are, I'm guessing, various types of rules within China. Explain what those are and why those are so important. Yeah. So 
for example, if uh, if there's a watch in Hong Kong, I cannot just take the watch into Hong Kong. Uh, sorry, from Hong Kong into mainland China and sell to somebody else, right? Because you need to pay tax to the government. You need to have it properly imported. That's compliance. So for us to trade Rayong pieces in mainland China, we do trade it. We trade um, watches full set with uh, uh, with a uh, with tax cleared. Uh, 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 inventory, which means that the, I mean, it could be an inventory from a uh, uh, local. We have partners like brands and, and platforms. They have the watches already custom cleared. I think it provides the invoice with the watches, and we are allowed to trade. Now, I understand that over the last couple of years, it's been a little bit more complicated, and you've obviously been in the market longer than I have. But I've known specifically that since probably 2013, so you know, about 10 years now, the uh, the experience of buying or bringing a luxury watch into China has has changed a lot, probably more so than any other market. Maybe you could explain a little bit about what it was like to get a luxury watch in China about 10 years ago and how that's very different right now, because it is, again, a different experience as far as I understand. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean China is still a developing country. It's, it's growing fast. It's uh, one of the strongest luxury market for sure. If you look at this market, uh, for example, if, if we are now going to Australia, right, we'll have everything we bring into the country very carefully checked, including luxury items. You're supposed to claim uh, what you are bringing, especially with the brand new uh, luxury items. So that that's going to be the same similar case for China too. You know, ten years ago, people can bring anything, right? They can bring uh, five watches, six watches, no problem. But now, because the government is improving. Countries growing, um, you know, uh, they they're more strict with uh, if if you bring a watch, a watch on your wrist, it's for your own use, no problem at all. But then if you're trying to bring in brand new watches with some patents, that's a problem. Now, you sell pre-owned watches, which is a big part of the business. Are this do the same taxes apply? I've always wondered because I know that there's a lot of taxes on brand new watches. There's, um, you know, a, a, I think it's a, a basically a VAT style tax yeah, yeah. on top of that. Is yeah. the same thing apply to pre-owned? Um, it's a different tax scheme. So for uh, brand new watches, it's uh, it's, uh, it's it's kind of luxury items, and then uh, uh, in the market here, if it's uh, pre-owned used items, it has different tax scheme. The difference is about Mm, I mean, here we can say about ten percent. Ten percent. It's not huge, um, but it, 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 there is a difference. Okay, is is it about sixty percent? Is that what it is for a brand new watch, and about fifty percent for a pre-owned item, or is the the, the rates different now? Because that's what I remember it was being a few years ago. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, uh, what I could say is that you know, between China and uh, uh, Switzerland, I believe there is a, t- a free a trade-free uh, agreement. So down the line, you know, in the next two to three years, I think eventually the import tax for watches from uh, uh, Switzerland to China is to be zero. Uh, but, but look, you still got to pay VAT, right? So when you when you import the items, so it's 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 changing every year, but it's coming down. It used to be like very high. You know, if you if you bring a very expensive watch, a richer meal, you go to China. And then you get caught, and then you're facing a fine. The fine could be as high as up to 60% of the value of the watch. So that's where the 60% comes in. Okay, so that's a pretty steep amount. So you have, again, import duties, which you say, you know, 
in a treaty with Switzerland uh, might be as, as low as, as zero. And yeah. then, of course, there's a VAT yeah. on top of it. And it's just interesting because, you know, when you're in America, for example, you have a relatively low level of taxes. America is one of the lowest, you know, the cheapest places to buy a luxury timepiece in the world. Of course, that varies from time to time. But in a lot of countries, it's a very different calculus. And for many years, Chinese consumers were known to travel to other countries to buy luxury goods, watches and other things, and to bring them back because that was the cheapest way of enjoying luxury products. And then over the last several years, as you said, Andy, there has been more checks. So when people bring things in, uh, they want the, the government wants people to pay uh, the necessary duties on it as though they would have bought them from China directly. Is that correct? That is correct. I mean, the price difference was huge. Ten years ago, you know, and then Hong Kong is part of China. Uh, why not? Right? If you want to go to Hong Kong and buy tax-free items, it's part of the. Uh, it's going to help the economy. Anyway, it's also one of the promotion business that the government would, would love. If you look at the, for example, like the, uh, for example, longer pricing distance between mainland China and Hong Kong, it's about like uh, eleven to twelve percent price difference. So really, the difference is not. So. We're not getting lots of lots of uh, collectors buying watches aiming in China. First of all, there is a stock. There is a stock. There is a supply. They have. Uh, they can go to the boutique anytime, enjoy a glass of champagne, uh, um, you know, pick up their watches. And then there are many events. So it's a combined experience. Plus, there's no more huge price difference anymore. So that's why there are more and more people buying locally in China, mainly now. Changing topics again, going to one of the pillars of what you said you were going to be doing for Watchbox in China, and that was education. And of course, yeah. we know that it's not really possible to be a watch aficionado unless you really understand the subject as well as the brand and, of course, yourself. Talk a little bit about what watch education events in China uh, look like, or if you haven't done them yet, what are some of your plans? And, and you know, what are some of these ambitions? I'd, I'd love to get sort of a mental image of what these events would be like to go to. We're going to, uh, you know my way, I always try to do some, uh, I, I want to be creative on uh, doing such kind of things. Like myself, I, uh, we, you know, I, I, I go to lots of forums, but I, I do go to lots of forums that is, uh, in collaboration with uh, cross industry people, like we would attend forums in the Fashion Week, uh, like uh, Shenzhen Shanghai Fashion Week. Uh, we attended forum with, uh, uh, of course, private bankings. We attended forum even with, uh, you know, uh, high end, uh, you know, men's, uh, you know, uh, t- uh, you know, the, those tailors, the, the men's wear uh, affairs or whiskey affairs. So we try to be very cross industry uh, collaborative in terms of. Uh, uh, one of the uh, forms we're doing. And the other thing is that, like for DVT and stuff like that, we try to have movie nights. You know, we try to invite friends and uh, uh, collectors, collectors' friends to be at a venue to watch movie together, grab some drinks and talk about watches. So we try to uh, blend in lifestyle with the watch education. Because I don't want to end up being somewhere and then keep talking about watches and he just want to show up what he knows. That's the least thing I want. You know, I want, you know, I, I would love to hear questions. I would love to have people to talk about their own case, about aesthetics, brands, 
um, their own study about the you know the brand path and what brands could be doing in the future. I think that's the most exciting part. And eventually, down the line, when we have the Watchful Shanghai office launch opening December, that specific location is going to be a combined uh, launch club. House uh, place, so we'll have uh, more collected friends just coming, grab a glass of wine or or even coffee, just to talk about watches. What's the right mixture between making it serious and professional and having it be sort of fun and social? Because you know we've been to a lot of these mm-hmm. events, we've gone to some together, and. I think that it's important to say that you need to strike that right mixture because I've been to events that are definitely too social Absolutely. and no one's learning anything other than what other people are wearing. And some are so serious and boring. You're like, I got to get out of here. How do you strike that right mix <laughs> for, you know, for you? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm still, I'm still learning as well. Um, right now for the events that, that I've done, uh, I separate the sessions in a very clear way. So if we watch the movie or we have like 40 minutes talking about watches, it's very serious in that knowledge. And I want to make sure that whoever whoever is participating, they actually have some basic knowledge before they actually you know, show up in the event. You know, they need to have some basic knowledge. Um, at least they, do, they need to know what brand are they going to hear about today. And then once we've done that, we move on to cocktail dinner, most likely it's dinner. Then it's the um, social and the fun part. You know, we have some drinks and talk about watches, collecting uh, uh, stories, watch journey. So I, we always do like a, a, a separation. So it helps people to clear their mindset and to participate. Now to have good events, of course, you have to spend a little bit of money. And you mentioned that you're going to have your own space to do it in soon, which is great. But my question has to do with the philosophy of setting aside marketing budget, because you've been at some brands and at some places that sell, and you know that oftentimes marketing is seen as a direct, well, if I spend $100, I need to make $200. But the reality is it doesn't really work that way. So how do you personally rationalize the marketing spend? Do you just sort of have a dedicated amount you spend all the time? How do you, basically the question is, how do you make sure you're spending enough on these initiatives mm. and these experiences and not worrying so much about how much you're making uh, directly in, in, in response to each of them? Yeah, man, I have, it's a, such a good question because um, I think everything is uh, uh, 2018, You remember that we both uh, worked on this uh, Shanghai Watch Festival. It, 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 it began with that, right? The journey began with that festival and the Lange Philips uh, workbox. My personal take on marketing is that I believe the best marketing channels are your clients. If you are putting your clients, your new partners, they are the ultimate uh, marketing uh, solutions or channels for your business. It does not matter that you can never um, you know, put a number in the marketing for example, if you do an event or put some number into uh, digital and then you try to think, okay, is this going to give me some money or some sales? I don't think it's going to work. But if you have five solid collective friends, clients as your partner, you are minimum, you're guaranteed you're able to sell five watches for sure, one each. But they're going to bring you more clients according to like, uh, the personal Wi-Fi hotspot uh, mechanism. That is the marketing I'm believing. So marketing needs to be, yes, for sure, results should 
same time, you need to be partnership driven. So if all the clients, all the friends attend one watch event, and when it's finished, everybody gets handover, they got really drunk, and they woke up and they, 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 they didn't form any bond uh, previous night, I think it was a fail. So that's just my take. I think uh, clients are just so, so much more than just spending money on a, a normal marketing event or, number, or, or any normal marketing roadmap. So practically speaking, do you set aside a certain budget every month, every year? Because don't you agree that you just sort of have to have resources and then you spend your time on how to use those resources as opposed to some of the other, we'll just call them brands or retailers that spend most of their time asking themselves how much to spend on marketing before they actually ever do anything? We do have budget, don't get me wrong. I mean, we do still have a budget. We have marketing. And then uh, for, for, for my side, brand awareness is a pretty much a thing that I really, really focus on. We have uh, spent, we, we, we spend more marketing uh, budget on the digital way. That's for sure. Other than, uh, um, other than you know, the physical magazines. People, uh, What's it like growing the audience in Shanghai, obviously, there's a lot of watch lovers there now. You talked about, you know, digital marketing initiatives and things like that. But these days, especially given the current context, what is what is necessary to actually attract, you know, new watch lovers and new business? That is uh, that is uh, pretty much the core challenging question or the fun part for, for all the uh, watch brands and platforms. Uh, for my side, uh, we, we focus on. I desire a lot of two things that I really want to focus on. One is, like I said, the clients, right? Make your clients your new partners and grow from there. The other is that we actually do put in uh, mechanism systematic uh, uh, marketing work with the local digital platforms. Like, for example, there's a mobile app for the Little Red Book. It's like the Chinese version of Instagram. That is really effective. You know, you, uh, you grow on that. We, we have lots of young people messaging us asking about watches and market. Um, that's pretty effective. Now, how is it that you get new watches? Of course, you have your network of people you work with and, and you let them know you want to acquire their watches. But my suspicion is that you have to cast a pretty wide net. China's a very big place. There's a lot of luxury watches in the market. What are the strategies of getting inventory in the first place? You mean as inventory for pre-owned trading or as inventory? I guess, yeah, as, as pre-owned watches, because a lot of the people, you know, are are looking to you to buy a secondary market watch. And of course, you have to have the inventory to begin with. And like we talked about earlier, it's not as simple as bringing them in from other markets like the Middle East or Europe or the United yeah. States. We have, I mean, these days, especially for China, we have so many Chinese collectors, you know, the Chinese background collectors, being outside in China, in Hong Kong, Singapore, Japan. Yes. So for them, it's a lot easier because they, they give to us or pro- provide them the global inventory and they, uh, they select the pickup location and pay the according tax and pick up the watches. That's uh, <clears throat> the offshore business is very, uh, has been very effective and uh, good for us. Now, onshore, uh, mainly in China, um, you know, for, for this specific area, it, it went by reputation. For example, for myself, I, I get lots of lots of requests that people originate their pieces and then uh, we take in the right ones with the right paperwork. We also check if the tax has been already, you know, if the watch has already been paid tax. And then we can just take a uh, as watch box, we display it, and then we sell it to um, 
sometimes we sell it discreetly. You know, we don't have to do to the right uh, customers. Hi, I'm Ariel Adams, founder of a blog to watch, and I've been using eBay to find watches for over 20 years. eBay is one of the world's largest marketplaces for timepieces. A luxury wristwatch is sold on eBay every seven seconds. And did you know there isn't any safer place to get watches? All luxury watches sold on the platform are covered by the industry's most robust customer protection policies. What makes eBay so confident is its exclusive authenticity guarantee service, which has a third party physically check each watch before it gets to you. In the United States, that's done through Stolen Company in Ohio. And among other things, it means that fakes are never an issue. eBay is also a great place to sell your watches, but you probably already knew that. Do what I do and check eBay before all of your next watch purchases. Now, when you look at inventory, do you know what market it comes from? I guess my question is, if you just sort of blindly look at the watches that came in, would you know that these are representing Chinese tastes? Or when at the end of the day, when you look at pre-owned watches, most markets sort of have the same taste these days. I guess I'm sort of asking a question of, is there a lot of localized taste now? Or because of social media, have yeah. tastes around the world sort of become homogenized? I'm, I'm, I'm actually not sure what it's like in China right now. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting question because um, people would think that uh, whatever we see these days on Instagram, you know, on, on the marketplace, um, are going to be quite universal world regions. I I think to the small to to to, to the minority of the collectors in China, yes, it is. But for the majority, they are still six to seven months behind the main trend. Uh, overseas, and not timepieces like any AP, contemporary APs, but tech. Even from the auctions, you'll see that uh, the pricing, the prices sold, are uh, slightly higher than prices that get sold in, the, for example, the United States. So there is uh, actually a difference, a taste difference between different markets. Um, and also, I'm seeing a finally a uh, growing portion of uh, vintage watches, even for China market. But they started, uh, in all of these people, they started very safe. They started with Rolex. If, for example, if you go to Japan, people started with from anything, right? Tudor, even Brightly, you know. So, uh, all of these classic brands. Um, but in China, people, for example, vintage watches, they all just start with Rolex. Yeah, yeah. What's the taste for independent watches? Obviously, I'll talk a little bit about the Shanghai uh, watch event that we did together where there was a huge appreciation for independent watches. But in general, independent, you know, or, or the smaller brands, whether they're very high-end or affordable, what's the penetration like in the Chinese market? Obviously, the big-name brands are going to be well-known, but the lesser-known smaller brands, micro-brands, talk about how they perform in China. That is going to be quite universal. I think independent watches, independent watch brands, I'm pretty sure both you and me, we still have that even, you know, for China market, it is going strong. People want some difference. They want independent watches. They want independent watches at different price tags. So they have their own. It's just amazing to see, to see that, yes, they're catching up with uh, the main trend of the big brands, um, you know, big branded pieces, but also at the same time, independent watch brands are actually growing the rapid speed uh, in China as well. So we're talking about people, they, for sure, they know Epijon, Richard Mille, 
And then they, they also know MNF, you know, all of those, all of those brands, DB2, WEC, all these classic independent watch brands. And then for the smaller ones, you can even see some brands that still wearing them too. You know, um, I don't know, Morris Grossman, kind of like independent. And then I've seen some, uh, uh, I'm talking about quantity. Huh? Uh, I've, I've seen people wearing Kari. I've seen people wearing the Rich App. Yeah, so surprisingly, independent uh, watchmaking has been growing a very fast rate yeah, in the market. And what about on the sort of lower end? Those are wonderful watchmakers that make beautiful objects, often at tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars. But these days, as you know, there's a very robust market of independent brands um, under 10,000, often under even two or 3,000. And there's been a lot of new watch lovers that have come into the market because of those watches. Maybe they'll go up market, but there's that sort of, some people like calling them crafts brands. And I, mm-hmm. I, I really don't know about how much that market has penetrated China yet. I think if, I think this. I remember this brand from uh, Hachimi Asaoka-san. Uh, he created this uh, super affordable this brand under his main brand, and, and they selling super well. So, really well here for sure. Okay, so there's definitely an appetite for it. Now, you yeah. said something interesting about how many of the Chinese uh, consumers, in terms of trends, are a little bit behind, which by definition implies that they're trying to keep up with others. Do you think at a point China will start to have its own taste, set its own trends that are independent of other markets? Or is there still sort of a cultural sensitivity to follow you know, what, what collectors are doing in other markets? Collecting precise instruments has been, uh, for China, it's been a thousand years. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a history for China. Uh, uh, it went all the way back to the empire um, <clears throat> age. I think down the line, as uh, for, for for Chinese culture, it doesn't matter what's the Chinese culture in the States or you know anywhere else. The Chinese have a very typical um, taste on uh, aesthetics, so I think it's still universal. So for the good things, um, for the good brands, good products, everybody's gonna love it. In terms of the material. That's interesting to see because in China, I mean, it used to be like rose gold. And, I mean, yellow gold was like the big, big, the biggest hit. And then move on to rose gold. And now, um, because uh, people try to stay more low-key, stuff like that, they are now moving back to white gold, uh, like white gold or platinum, white metal watches. So I'm actually seeing more like uh, case, on the, uh, case materials rather than like actual uh, models because like, Everybody loves Royal Oak, uh, Rolex, uh, you know, in China too. What about ceramics and the carbon blends and all the composites, which are commanding very high prices, obviously aren't traditionally valuable like a precious Mm -hmm. metal, but are you seeing popularity with some of those more, we'll call them modern watch case materials? They are definitely very popular because um, there are many new, uh, younger uh, who are watch lovers and they, they, they do lots of spas, their lifestyle are more sporty and they love those materials. You know, the reason why I mentioned that China made in the market is slightly behind simply because there's no access to Google, YouTube, or Instagram women in China, right? So all this information will take a little bit of time to get to them. But those information, all of these novelty release information, all of these reviews, 
they do get to the cars here. It just takes some time. Yeah, and that's interesting because, you know, um, a blog to watch doesn't have exactly an analog in China. The media landscape is different. I mean, obviously, this is an early conversation we had about what it's like to have that type of media in China, what would make that possible. And there's a lot of challenges <laughs> related to <Yeah. laughs> governance and policy and media yeah. that make it you can't just have an enthusiast magazine. And I think that one of the things that people should understand from a conversation like this is that commercializing watch, you know, uh, watch love is one of the only ways of creating that community in China. You know, having a store do it seems to be a more natural yeah. way in the market of educating people than media doing it. There's all this sort, sort of strange suspicion, like, wait a minute, your job is just to get people excited about a hobby? No, we're not sure. We're not really <laughs> sure about that, right? Like, it's, it's it, though in the U.S. <laughs> and Europe, that'd be totally, that's totally normal. It, it's an interesting contrast, right? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's also changing too, you know, personally, I would love to see um, young kids these days in China to, you know, you know, to, to, to be at the watchmaking school, you know, to have just a more perspective to look at how, what they want to do in the future. You know, they should open their, broaden their visions and then try to be part of this industry. I would love to see that. You know, for us, I'm, I'm also, because I've lived in four countries since I was young, uh, I believe that wherever the business is, it needs to be localized. What are we doing now, as most of us China uh, in, in this country, is not 100% uh, U.S. style because it needs to be localized. Um, so China, if you look at this, the, the style of this market, it, it is very similar to Japan market. Japan, everything is localized there. Everything's doing so well, and everything looks cool and very. Uh, it just resonates with the local vibe. Um, that's the same case for us. So as long as you're able to local the business in a way, but also in the uh, core value of the of the business, uh, you 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 succeed in China. Now that's a very important piece of wisdom that you need to localize all everything for the for the. Okay. Country, yeah. you have to have localization for retail, localization for media, for education. That's right. But that that is something that watch brands who are run out of Switzerland or places in Europe don't really like to hear because they want it to be not localized to the region but centralized from HQ. And you've worked in house at brands a little bit, like Along and Zona, and then. Philips, yeah. which I guess is sort of half and half, and now officially not at a brand. It sounds like you've had to make this journey through these various steps to find a position that allows that type of localization because it just doesn't fit with the culture in Europe sometimes, right? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the product design, the R&D, the actual core product, just like said, sort of things are not going to change. They are the core values. But in terms of how to get introduced how to do activities around it, how to build brand awareness, stuff like that. It needs to be localized in terms of the business structure, how you set up the company, how you work with local government. It has to be localized because you need a different culture. You know? And that's something that you agree the Swiss and probably to a degree the Germans are still trying to come to grips with. They still have a problem with letting go of that control. It's as though... Only they know what luxury is. Only they know what taste is. And no no markets allowed to make those decisions for them. How would you describe 
some of those kind of quirky European mentalities <laughs> to to luxury and good taste that are you know we we laugh at them for it a little bit but they 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 take these weird stereotypes they have quite seriously man i have to say that you know <laughs> i uh i went to uk for education when i was young i uh, spent like one of ten years in europe part of me is cookie too so i have to say that <laughs> so i i kind of understand one side that uh, luxury is luxury that is also i agree that i think uh, the younger generation in china been properly built luxury brands from from the european i think that's something that i'm i'm seeing there's a big improvement that uh, for china market young young generation need to learn from that now for the europeans for the uh, the overseas culture i think they need to also understand that who the customers are because they are buying it you can't just say okay i want to sell your products and then not give you the right uh, and that would not work because if you look at uh, how many, you know, uh, or Chinese or like uh, uh, China-related clients are buying luxury states, pretty much uh, up to almost half of the whole industry volume. So I think what really should happen is to, yes, do the business, but at the same time, give the right recognition, you know. Invite more to the events, um, uh, interesting activities for these clients, you know, educate them, be patient. I think that's important. One of the trends that I think is emerging right now and is obviously very apparent in this conversation is that to get people excited about buying a watch today, you have to sell them more than this object they wear on the wrist. You have to sell them an experience, yeah. a club, friendship, yeah. um, you know, education. You have to sell them on life enhancement as opposed to just something you're wearing. And I, I, I think that that is the most crucial lesson in luxury watches today, that you're not just selling the product, right? That's, that's, that's 200% correct. And then if you're selling the product and the people will just say, okay, this is how much it costs, what is the extra cost, and this is how much I should be paying. It is the vision, the experience, the future journey um, that clients might be able to build together with the brands. Uh, I think that's the most important part. I'm, I'm calling it partnership. I think down the line, you know, you, you know that Web3 Web is, uh, is growing fast. One point for the NFT, stuff like that, uh, is that uh, the owners, the holders, they're able to grow the community, grow the brand together with the founding uh, founding members. So we are entering, we're going to, I think 100% we're going to be entering a new stage of doing retail selling products. There will be more collectors or even clients, you know, just like myself, to participate in the industry, work with the brands, um, you know, to achieve uh, a higher, um, uh, you know, result both in the commercial and the brand value um, perspective. Deben Thun is a luxury Swiss watchmaker that Watchbox essentially, essentially has the controlling stake in, some would say more or less owns. And so now, in addition to its pre-owned, or we'll call it secondary market business, it now is a primary retailer of, of Debentune, um, which is a great brand, which is an interesting development for the brand. That's, that's not news of now. That happened a couple of years ago. But talk about Debentune and 
what Watchbox is doing differently than other companies yeah. that have controlling stakes in, in similar brands. Because Deadman 2 is a very special company, and now you have a very special way of selling it. I mean, Watchbox, the whole journey of Watchbox, that was a special too, right? Everybody was focusing offline, obscure Watchbox started online, right? Then we sort of like moved to offline, we moved to locations, we have launches in the, across the whole world. And then we have a round of investors like uh, Michael Jordan, Chris Paul, you know, the NBA celebrities, and uh, um, those guys, uh, you know, yeah. it's, it's a very unique um, business model. And then I, I also believe that there's only timing was also very important. And if you try to do, you know, duplicate the same roadmap, if you're starting now today, it's hard to duplicate it. And now we have DB2, right? So I will say that, okay, for example, for our clients, they will say, okay, I have so many drawings, I have so many rich meals, why, why, why do I need to buy this? I'm like, that's that's not a thing we're trying to say. We're trying to say that if you're into independent watchmaking, you're supposed to have good ones, right? You need to have Jean, you can have Richard Mille, you can have Ambient Dev, uh, Uwek, uh, Group of Forces. Now, Dibitune, in terms of design and the brand story, and then is the guy behind it, is one of the must-have. You need to must, you must have at least one piece in your collection. And Dibitune is not having a big production in any way. They only have, well, I think each year they produce like what, 200 pieces, less than 300. There are not going to be many available ones to sell. So I think, I believe the demand is going to really grow fast in the next three years. It's not because that we are the guys behind it to push it. Of course, we wanted to push it, but it's never the case. You know, it's always the market. It's always the market reaction. The market will tell you what's right and wrong. It's not the guy behind it saying, okay, we want to tell the market what's enough. It's not going to work. It's always the market. I've always wondered how the people at Debentune, uh, you know, the founder and, of course, the watchmaking team, how they view this. Because you've given them a very special opportunity. You've done something amazing for them. Um, but, you know, they have a lot okay. of opinions and things like that about, you know, how, how to do everything, right? And sometimes you want to say to them, like, hey, <laughs> hey, stick to making watches. Let us figure out the other stuff. But what are, what are some of the things that they feel should be part of the experience of buying and selling their watches and stuff like that? You know, I'm sure they give you feedback. I'm sure you've heard it directly from them. What, what do they say? I can only say in a quite general way that we are working in a very, very pleasant uh, uh, dynamics with Pierre and York. I'm sure you met them also, right? Uh, of course. The core guys behind the brand. Um, I don't know, for some reason, maybe it's just that we uh, <laughs> we belong to friends and then thanks to the previous experience that it just, uh, this, we, we, we haven't had, uh, uh, honestly, any communication hurdles yet and then uh i also believe that right now dbt officially got acquired by watchbox that's a signal already so which means that at least the value proposition and the the, the, the vision for the brand uh, it is aligned uh, between both parties do people ask you you know is there a conflict of interest here because you you know, you you have to sell this brand, but you have to sell these other ones as well. I'm just wondering some of the questions that you might get asked because consumers are savvy and you know they want to make sure that they're getting the best you know information. What what do you say to them about the sort of like strange you know like we sell all these pre-owned watches, but we also sell these new watches here. Like I'm just curious how you communicate it. Yes, 
when we have uh, many practice friends, uh, they they are uh, asking all sort of questions. I only have one method to deal with that is to be fully transparent. In China, we are the um, as Watchbox Shanghai launched for now, that's the only place that is authorized to be able to take in orders for the between time pieces. So, so if you want one in China, yeah. it's got to be through you. Yeah. And of course, through my launch, there are many watch dealers. They bought the between somewhere else in the world and then they're selling it, trying to sell out the market in a gray area and they claim themselves to be like uh, <laughs> authorized or retailer, something like all those bullshit stuff. So, <laughs> so we came in, it was like, okay, that's common to see because people want to make money, but look, it's, it has to stop because if we are authorized, we are authorized, right? And that would help to protect our clients too. So that's that to them. Look, we are authorized. And uh, you have the rights to make your any judgment you have. But we are authorized. You know, you want to order a DBT income to speak with us, we will help you with that. And also at the same time, you know, if you want, if your budget is probably say, okay, I, I need to sell my, uh, I don't know, I have a few uh, pieces I want to consolidate it to upgrade to a debitum piece, no problem. And then that's really, we take in the time pieces, we we, uh, we, we we get your cash out and you can upgrade to a better time piece. Yeah. So it's it's more like a win-win. For us, it's more like, in the, for this industry down the line, we'll be seeing brand uh, doing more and more pre-owned business and the pre-owned um, focusing companies, they're, they're, they're trying to do more and more um, branded. Too. So it's more like, going to be like that right I, I believe that's a trend now let's talk about some other trends that you might see there's always a lot of questions as to what's going to be happening in china as we know historically over the last decade or so china has been such an important market for the global luxury watch industry especially the swiss brands um and there's been a lot of changes in china um oh, of yeah. course you can't tell the future but based upon what you know and what you're seeing, especially in the sort of epicenter of Shanghai, which I think is one of the most important markets there in mainland China, what what are you seeing and what do you think is going to be happening over the next 12 to 24 months? Oh, I, I really hope I'm seeing a, uh, a release or a, uh, a release of the current uh, COVID quarantine policy of China by 2023. Once China opens... Uh, fully for the, uh, the border, there will be a boom to luxury business. Because um, you know, you know, back a few years ago, you know, when 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 we when we talk about this watch market in China, you have ten friends around you, maybe one or two out of ten talking about watches. And now it's like uh, uh, maybe half of them already know what is Rolex, what is Omega, what is Speedmaster. You know. It's 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 growing fast. The awareness of these uh, watches as a very collectible items. It's kind of like mindset uh, has grown tremendously. It will only grow in an exponential way, and eventually there will be more demand. There will be more buyers, uh, more demand, and then there will be more recognition. Local collectors they they they, they want to have. Uh, when we were talking about the global uh, watch collecting culture. So I, I, I hope that uh, down the line, the next 24 months, I hope to see, um, I hope to see a rising up of the retail business for all the brands, not just the primary brands, but also affordable brands too. You know, right now, for example, Grand Circle, even Brightling, they're selling super well. Brightling just moved into China for business, uh, 
early uh, late last year, so they're just getting started. So all of these brands, they're actually bringing out better products and better sales network into China now. So we should see a rise of that. And also a huge rising up for the pre-owned market because people, so you just cannot keep buying brand new stuff and keeping all of them. Right? There, there will be a demand, huge demand for consolidation and then upgrading. So that is something going to happen too. And for China, 10 years ago, it's about how quickly you do business, how quickly you make money. And then going forward, I, I believe it's going to be really about how good the reputation is. It's about the trust. It's about the reputation. It's about the, um, the knowledge, uh, the long-term business. That's very interesting. And what I'm hearing is that from a consumer perspective, it's a very good scene. The consumers are yeah. there. They're willing. They're able. There's certain, we'll just call them geopolitical factors that you cannot control. But assuming those things go the correct way, the market environment is very promising and can grow very easily based upon the mindset and the desires of the consumers. Is that what you're saying? Yes. And also the bottom line is people, as normal people in the, in the country, they want to make money. They want to live a good life. They want to award themselves um, something and they want to have good recognition. It's a common thing that uh, everybody wants, it, right? So luxury market, just, uh, I believe, which I believe, for, especially for a watch market, uh, it is just getting started. I always think that 2019 was really kind of like the a new milestone beginning year for the watch industry, uh, especially for China market. And up to now, I'm saying, yes, it's, uh, it's it's only growing. Yes, it's a bear market right now. There's a global economy, you know, slowdown. But slowdown will get over. You know, I think by 2024, it will really have a significant bounce back. Now, before we end, I just sort of want to ask you about the inventory, because I can imagine that you have quite a cherry selection of cool watches. And as the CEO, you have some privileges do you find yourself playing with the inventory and amazing yourself with all the different things you get to wear? Because I, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm just imagining that just the inventory <laughs> you have in, chi in, in China is really exciting and you must have some amazing fringe benefits. I'm just saying. I mean, not yet because we are still renovating our Shanghai launch. Um, I, 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 I'm very uh, lucky to see some of the rarest, uh, for example, Dijon's or Jamil's. Uh, you know, protects uh, that I've never seen before. In special drones, there are some drones for, like, for example, like Holland, Holland, uh, Tokyo, Tobion. Those kind of pieces that I only saw in a magazine, I'm able to see it. But for sure, I was able to play around with it because <laughs> I don't want to scratch it. And uh, we, 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 we need to see the actual real watch that gets you really to feel like, okay, the, even the economy is uh, sometimes up and down. There are people out there that are actually making one of the best products in the world. That's how I feel about it. Okay, but like, let's be honest, you're going to get the pick of what you want, right? I'm not saying you get to take them for nothing, but anytime you want to watch, you know, you can satisfy your watch dreams easier than probably anyone else right now, right? I thought that was the way, but I couldn't. All of our inventory, all of our watches are strictly kept the safe. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, not, not not allowed to play around. I uh, if you want to play around, you play around with your own watches. <laughs> okay, okay. Eventually, so, I'm going to get you to admit that you've got some good deals on watches from your position. Okay, it'll happen eventually. 
<laughs> well, for example, I'm sure if, if if we have an order for like some cool DBT, we imported DBT the day before we hand over to the client. For sure, I'll, I'll take a look at this. <laughs> we're we're going to make sure it's brand new anyway. <laughs> Andy, thank you so much for joining me. Just before we go out, where can people uh, learn more about Watchbox Shanghai? Is your specific website? Um, is you know this is your chance just to mention anything else you want to plug? Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, brother. Um, look, I mean, uh, down the line uh, for this TR material, I think uh, thanks to all the friends supporting me in the industry. Um, just simple Google it or like uh, search a Watchbox Shanghai or Watchbox China. There will be articles and uh, information around it. We'll be releasing. Um, uh, there will be more content and then more. Uh, um, and then there are many financial posts and or like uh, uh, all, all the contents we have. So I think just Google it, or in China you should just Baidu, set up Baidu, or check out Xiaohongshu. So, so it's all good. It will be online. And then uh, once the Shanghai launch is up and running, anyone is more than welcome to 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 get open and and then have a zip of champagne. That sounds wonderful. I look forward to visiting myself. Everyone, this oh, has please, been yeah. Mr. Andy Zhang, CEO of Watchbox China. Andy, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Eric. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at ablogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com.